0: You may be feeling sort of the way I'm feeling. And I'm feeling sort of the way the narrator is feeling. That is, bummer. <laughs> All of a sudden, this wonderful love story uh, is taking a very tragic turn and it does so really very rapidly and very dramatically. There was almost like a fulcrum or a focal point in the center of book three, a high point of happiness uh, of the lovers. And it is immediately followed, you remember, by this uh, plangent Boethian speculation about the brevity of human happiness. That ought to prepare us for what happens now. I got a couple of emails after my last lecture that suggested I had perhaps been a bit breathless as I came to the end of the lecture and tried to explain to you my brilliant idea about Lollius. And since this is so original and so brilliant and it's so important that you understand it, I'm going to go back and repeat what I said. I gave you a handout, if you'll recall, that has on it a poem uh, written by... Uh, Horace. Uh, it is uh, one of his verse e- uh, epistles. It's a, it's a letter written as a poem. The most famous of these is of course uh, the Ars Poetica itself. We've seen already how in book two Chaucer was making explicit, explicit use of Horace. It's rather unusual incidentally. Uh, the The classical authors who were well known to the Middle Ages were Virgil and Ovid. Uh, it takes a bit of research on Chaucer's part uh, to come up with these Horatian uh, allusions. But the point is that this is one of two poems written by Horace to a young friend who is setting out to be a poet. And so it is giving him advice as to how to write a poem. Now, my witty theory is that Chaucer knew this poem, or at least he had read this poem, and it gave him the bright idea of pretending that he would find a lost poem actually written by this guy. That is, the one to whom Horace was writing advice. See, Lollius has always been a kind of mystery word. Where did it come from? Everybody knew that the one place in classical literature it came from is from line one of this poem. Trani belli scriptorum maximi Lolly. If you know Latin, you'll see that that is in the vocative case. That is, it's, it's Horace talking directly to somebody whose name is Lalius. But you don't say, hello, Lalius in Latin. You say, hello, Lolly. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. It's one of the great things about the Latin language. So, Maxime Lloyd. Now, uh, people got to thinking, in particular, uh, Professor Kittred, the inventor of the um, marriage group uh, theory, and he said if Chaucer didn't know any Latin or didn't know enough Latin, or if he found a corrupt manuscript in which the word scriptorium was not in the accusative, as it is in Horace, but say it was in the nominative, scriptor, he might have thought that what this line was saying was, Oh, you great Lallius, famous writer on the Trojan War. Now, the only thing different about my theory is that I am attributing cleverness to Chaucer rather than stupidity. I believe that he did know how to read the Latin language and that he read this very clearly, but that he did what I told you a minute ago. What is really interesting to me is the way that Horace characterizes the Homeric poems because they're not ways that we would characterize them at all. He sees that they are both moral allegories. He says, uh, while you've been declaiming at Rome, because in uh, ancient uh, Rome, when you went to law school, what you studied was Homer. And you, uh, practiced declaiming him. While you've been doing that, he says, I've been off at my country estate, and I've been rereading these two poems carefully. And what do I see in them? I see two moral allegories. And in particular, I see the Iliad, which is about the hops, ice juice, of stupid kings and peoples, which pretty much summarizes what's going on in the in the Troilus, it seems to me, and how the culpability of their great men brings disaster upon the entire uh, in, entire society. So I think it's, it's a rather witty way that Chaucer is uh, suggesting a uh, an antique or a reading of this poem, which he allegedly has found and translated. Of course, we know. He has found it in, uh, in Boccaccio. But anyway, on to, uh, on to book four, because at this point it takes a, a very sudden and a somber turn. All too little, he says, says the narrator, all too little well away the wheeler, lasteth switch joy, efunked bay fortune. And from now on, the presiding deity of the poem is indeed the goddess fortune. It's in books four and five that Chaucer has most brilliantly and explicitly harnessed the energies of the consolation of philosophy to try to make this ancient erotic story philosophically uh, significant. I've already pointed out that he's imposed upon the poem the five-book structure of both the consolation of philosophy and Senecan tragedy. So he takes a romance in Boccaccio and turns it into uh, a Boethian tragedy. But he also has more or less imposed upon the poem no less than about a thousand lines of his poetry out of the Consolation of Philosophy. About half of Book 4 and half of Book 5 are alluding to the Consolation of Philosophy. Even better, so that we're not going to miss what's going on, the Corresponding action at the end of Book 4 of the uh, Constellation corresponds to what's happening at the end of Book 4 of the Troilus and what you have at the beginning of Book 5 in the Constellation likewise to what you have at the beginning of Book 5 uh, in the Troilus. And oversimplifying somewhat, uh, in Boethius, in the original text, the hero, Boethius, lives up to the task. Lady Philosophy says to him in Book 4, I'm now going to try to teach you something that even my greatest adepts, by which she means those classical philosophers who found a part of the truth but could not find the whole truth, and in particular she means, and she mentions by name, Cicero, uh, weren't able to see uh, this truth. And what is the truth? The truth is that the fact that God exists and that God has a certain foreknowledge of everything that is going to happen, but that does not constrain your freedom of the will. You still are free to choose. God knows what you're going to choose, but that does not constrain your free choice. Now, that's the hardest part of the consolation of, of uh, philosophy of Boethius. Uh, I'm shaky on it myself, speaking in simply personal terms. I've known a lot of students who don't find it terribly uh, convincing. But in a literary way, it is the high point of the Consolation of Philosophy. And what you have replayed, don't you see, in the Troilus, uh, is this same scene. And it's pretty much like the wonderful moment in the Wife of Bath prologue, where she gets to the point where the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, Verily, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And the Wife of Bath says, But what he meant there be, he cannot say. That is, she fails to see the meaning and here I think it is that Troilus tragically falls short of the requirements of his own better reason. And he falls back uh, into the tragedy of ancient paganism as it is seen in these uh, Christian media- medievalizing texts. It is a world, therefore, that is uh, uh, ruled over by capricious fate and fortune. But also that a well the we uh, we, uh lasteth switch joy e fontid fortune that sameth truest when she walled the gila and con de folas so your song in tune that she hem hint and blint traitor commune and there you get the T adjective and 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 verb uh, blend to blind Blent, past participle uh, blinded. It is the same kind of blindness that we have to associate with uh uh, Oedipus, of course, or that blindness of clever manipulation, as used by Pandarus when he says, "When folks that's the time to uh, uh, that is the time to take uh, uh, to take action." Now, there's a strong parallel developed in Book Four between two of our major characters, namely the narrator and Troilus. I've mentioned this before. And it is connected to this Boethian theme that I'm talking about. Both of these people now have to almost go into an orgy of denial that they have free will. It's very important to uh, Troilus uh, that he thinks that he is a victim of a malign divine force over which he has no control. And it's very important to the narrator <laughs> that he not be held responsible for the tragic turn uh, that the, uh, text is, the, the text is going to, uh, to take. So in the four paragraphs of the uh, Proemium here, he, he covers a lot of ground. He tells you that uh, Troilus, as he is descending on the wheel, is going to see Diomedes. You know, we don't know who Diomedes is even yet, but he's the guy who's going to uh, steal Crusader from him. We see him rising on the wheel. And that wheel is, of course, the wheel of fortune. But he's most interested in crusade. He half, he's half in love with crusade. He tries to exculpate her uh, from uh, the <laughs> terrible rap that she has been given, he thinks, by the literary tradition. For how crusada Troilus forsook, he says. Now, that's actually what happened. Uh, Crusader uh, uh, forsakes Crusada uh, forsakes Troilus. For how Crusader Troilus forsook. Read the next line. Or at a lace, how that she was unkinda. She wasn't very nice uh, to uh, Troilus. That is the way that he would rather uh, put it. Uh, Mote enforce bin mater of me book as written folk. Third which it is in minda. I have to tell this story because this is the story that is written in books that I have inherited. If I were telling the story, it would be a different kind of story because I don't think that she is that kind of person. And then in the final uh, verse paragraph of the uh, proemium, you have a lot of heavy-duty mythological uh, references to death, uh, destruction, and the end of civilization as we know it, and it echoes. The very opening of the poem, that extraordinary opening of the poem, in which the narrator, instead of invoking a muse, has invoked uh one of the Furies. And Tesiphone uh, appears uh, here uh, again. In other words, if you have a dispassionate, classically uh, uh, inflected uh, ability to read this poem, you can see uh, right from the beginning of Book 4 that it's going Heading rapidly uh, in the direction of major tragedy, despite the fact that uh, Troilus is trying to hold this off, and despite the fact that the narrator uh, is, trying to do the, uh, is trying to do the same thing. We now, at the beginning of Book 4, get a little bit of a medley of what ancient warfare must have been like, as imagined by a medieval historical novelist, which means that it looks pretty much like uh, medieval warfare. And that looks pretty much like World War I to me. Uh, that is to say, you have a situation here in which you have two groups who are in fixed positions, the Trojans um, in their city, of course. The Greeks back at this place called the Greek camp. And every now and then, not even every day, but every now and then, sorties or patrols come out from the two sides and they fight in skirmish and one day one group wins a little bit and the other group uh, wins a bit. Well, there's a bad scene on one of these things because the uh, Trojan uh, skirmishers uh, are defeated and a number of them uh, are in fact uh, captured. And the way the captured prisoners are treated uh, in this poem is straight out of medieval warfare. The only prisoners you captured in medieval warfare were people that you had a financial interest in. I mean, if you didn't, you'd kill them. Uh, but if if they were worth money, uh, you would capture them and hold them for ransom. Chaucer himself had been ransomed. In fact, you were hardly were anybody in the medieval aristocratic world if you hadn't been ransomed, you know, once or or twice. And it even was more distinguished if they couldn't come up with the ransom. I mean, if you were so valuable that you had to spend several years there, that happened to one of the kings. Uh, that happened to one of the kings of England. Well, anyway, this has happened, uh, and uh, Calchas uh, has, of course, who's now over in the Greek uh, camp, uh, has found out about this. They've captured a bunch of Trojans, and they call a truce in order to make the financial arrangements, in order to sort of trade some of the prisoners, uh, get money for some of the uh, captives, and so on. And one of the prisoners is of particular interest to us. He is a Trojan named Antinor. Now bright lights ought to start blinking at you uh, with that very name. This is what Chaucer expected uh, to happen because you're supposed to know the story and you're supposed to know the story that Antinor is actually among the traitors who helped Diomedes uh, and Ulysses come into Troy and steal the Palladium In other words, you've got an ironic situation here in that Crusader is going to be exchanged for Antinor who actually turns out to be although we don't know it yet, we know it from other reading, uh, actually turns out to be the traitor who, des- uh, d- uh, who, destroys, uh, who destroys Troy. What are we to think of Calchas at this point? Seems to me that one of these moments where we can makes some fairly subtle moral adjudication. Uh, Calchas, we have thought, has not been a very good person. We only saw him in Book 1, and when he found out, through his various acts of divination, that Troy was going to be destroyed, he took off to the Greek camp, leaving his daughter behind, and leaving her in great jeopardy, all that kind of stuff. Now, upon mature reflection... He is repenting of that. And he's saying, gee, it was wrong of me to have left Crusader there. Is there some way I can get her back? Now, I, I, point, it out, I point this out to you because the rhetoric of the text you know, makes it sound as though he's doing something really bad. And it seems to me that if we can see it from his point of view, he's trying to make up for something bad that he did in the past, namely leaving his daughter Granted in Troy and in difficulty. So he goes to his Greek uh, uh, bosses and says, uh, I really made a mistake. Uh, uh, I made a mistake uh, in leaving uh, Crusader there. Would you be willing to exchange her for one of the prisoners? And as it turns out, of course, the exchange is going to be made for Antinor, uh, who, uh, who is the traitor. Now, there's only one thing wrong with this. Uh, his assumption, presumably, is that his daughter would desire nothing more than to be with him. She wants to come and do. He doesn't know that she is ostensibly in love with a, a Trojan prince. But the thing wrong, though, that now happens is, of course, that Crusader is mistreated once again by the entire body politic of Troy. This is one of those examples where what pandarus and troilus are up to on an individual level finds its objective correlative in a sense in what the entire uh, trojan polity is doing that is what right do they have to ship her out of town they don't even take that uh, into uh, consideration but this is what is going to bring uh, this is what is going to bring uh, about the uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, tragedy uh, uh, in the parliament, uh, there's only one person who stands up for Crusader. And it is, once again, Hector. I told you there are two good pagans, as far as I can see, in this poem. And they're both very important for that reason, because they do show you the possibility of heroic moral virtue on the part of, uh, of these uh, pagans. The first time we saw Hector... Uh, in action, was when Crusader came around to him and said, you know, my father has skipped town and I'm probably a un- suspect. And he says, never mind. You're an independent person. What your father does has nothing to do with this. He's a moral hero, but of course, he doesn't know uh, what's going around uh, beneath uh, the surface. And he makes this wonderful speech on page 540 at line 176. Hector, which that well the great is herda for Antinor, how, uh, how they would hand Crusader when he hears that they want to make this exchange, gan it with stoned. He stands against it. He opposes it. And soberly answered, Sears, she nis no prisoner, he said. E note on no, ho, oh, that is charge allayed. But on me part, ye may epsons him tella." I don't know who came up with this idea, but whoever came up with it, you can tell him for me. Wei yous here, no, women for to sell us. It's a great speech, but he seems to be unaware that he is in the woman-swapping center uh, of the Middle East. It's just that it's going on behind his back. He's a virtuous person. He's not going to see that this is exactly uh, what, And you know, we just came out of a book in which Troilus said to uh, uh, Pandarus, which of the frap would you like? Which of the... Gaggle of women, would you like? Polixena? You like Polixena? How about a little Cassandra? Helen of Troy offers all three of them. Uh, it is the world swapping center of, of the ancient world as far as uh, that is concerned. Now, uh, the question is often asked uh, to me you now everybody likes Chaucer. He seems so congenial. He's like a really nice guy. There are not too many uh, figures out of uh, American or British literature that I would really like to have lunch with, but I think Chaucer, you know, clearly is one of those. So people want to see in him a progressive political liberal. Now here I've got bad news for you. He is a 14th century Catholic aristocrat, and a popular opinion uh, scares him a great deal. Do you remember in the Nun's Priest Tale when he's trying to describe the utter chaos at the end of the tale? When all the animals and everybody is chasing after the fox, you know, he says uh, it wasn't this bad when uh, Jack Straw and his, all his menet set out to kill the Flemings in 1381 uh, in, the, uh, in the Peasants' Revolt. And the enemy here seems to be in line 183, the noise of people, notice that, the noise of papal upstart, then at Onus, uh, as brain of blas of straw is set on thera. And in fact, it's exactly, uh, the same, uh, pun, uh, on fire in the straw, jack straw, and so on, that we saw on a different, uh, occasion. It is the fickleness of people who are supporting, uh, this idea, uh, that, uh, Crusader, uh, should be, uh, should be returned. And from this, on, uh, from this point on, uh, we never see another moment of happiness uh, from, uh, from uh, Troilus. Now, I want to tell you about one or two little technical points in the, in, in the poem here because it shows us something, even though it's uh, rather detailed, it shows us something about the imagination, the poetic imagination uh, that is uh, at work here. Troilus repeats the scene that we saw in Book 1, when he fell in love. This is a double sorrow. Falling in love is a big, uh, is a sorrow. Falling out of love or, you know, having the complication of love is a second sorrow. In the first book, when he fell in love, remember what he did? He went back to his bed, bedroom, and lay down on the bed and moaned and groaned. And Pandarus had to come and visit him. So under these circumstances, we should not be surprised that he goes back to his bed, uh, goes back to his bedroom, uh, lies down, uh, and moans. Uh, and groans that line 220 when he leaves uh, the parliament, you get this image. And as in winter leaves has been bereft, each after other till the trees they bar, so that their nip but bark and he laugh in winter, you've just seen this when all the leaves are falling off a tree, uh, finally you're ended up you end up with uh, nothing uh, nothing left but the bare, uh, bear bark, leaf troilus, bereft of h welfare, eboondin in the black a bark of care, disposed woad, oot of his wit to breda, so sore him sat, the changing of crusader. Now, the language here is wonderful. I hope you do have the text, uh, in, 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 front of you. Uh, but if, if you don't, I'll try to point out some of this anyway. Uh, here you have, uh, the individual leaves that are coming off the tree in a rather forced manner compared to welfares, that is to say, um, moments of happiness that Troilus has enjoyed. And now he enjoys none of them. He is left in the black bark of care. That means the bark of the tree, but it also remember that the word bark means a ship uh, or uh, a little, uh, little boat. But in line 230, he is disposed, wode. The man is wode, me leave brother. You know that you can see the pun. You're, you know enough Middle English to do this now. Wode means crazy. But of course, it also means wood. I mean, he has been turned into uh, wood or, or uh, driven mad by uh, the experience. Those of you, however, who have read your Dante may remember this image in a very different way. When Dante, uh, the pilgrim, first comes down to the shore of the river into hell, he sees a vast number of souls. And he says, it's like what you see in winter when all the leaves have blown off the tree. And, of course, standing right next to him is Virgil. And Virgil is the one who actually invented this image. Now, you get two or three examples right in this little passage of Chaucer... Uh, rather flamboyantly showing you what he knows about uh, classical, uh, what he knows about uh, classical uh, literature. <clears throat> uh, look at it, the comparison between Troilus and the and the bowl at the very bottom of page 541. Ripped as the wheel, bull beginneth springa, now here, now there. He darted to the hert, and at his death roareth in complaining. Ricso gan he a boot the chambre stare to smeeting his breast a hey, with his fist to smear to, uh, his bed his head to the wall his body to the ground, full off he swamped uh, himself in two confound. He's running around like a berserker, a madman, crashing his head against uh, against the uh, against the wall. Now once again, uh, Chaucer is very clearly seeing a moment in Dante. In looking straight through that moment back to Virgil. It's the most remarkable uh, thing. The scene in Virgil is the famous scene uh, of the Laocoon group, uh, group, the priest Laocoon. Remember, they, they get the, the uh, Trojan horse, and they're not quite sure whether or not they can trust this, so they need to have a little religious rite. And they go down to the beach the shore and they prepare to sacrifice a, a big bullock this can't have been easy incidentally imagine you know you're it's like bullfighting you know you've got to really know what you're doing uh, and this sort of thing must have happened quite a bit what what uh, uh, Virgil says uh, is they take the axe and they give it a tremendous great plump and it misses it doesn't quite kill the bull but it just so grossly wounds him and he goes, Arr! that's a bull raging around uh, on, on, on a beachfront. And at that moment, these, uh, these serpentine monsters come out of the water and they grab the priest and his son, this very famous uh, statue, you know, Lessing wrote a whole book uh, in 18th century aesthetics about the and Le- group. So what you have there is the person who sets out to be the sacrificer uh, actually becoming the sacrifice. That's a very clever idea, i got to say, of Virgil. Uh, okay, so Dante then reads this scene, and he says, oh, that was a pretty clever idea, but I'm going to make an even cleverer idea uh, out of it. I'm going to present you with a bull that is also a man. And he gives us the figure of the Minotaur, the infamy of Crete, and when Dante and Virgil peek over the edge of this uh, horrible uh, chasm down into, to, look at the, uh, to look at the Minotaur, uh, there he is doing this qua and la stuff. The one uh, uh, consistent bit of language you have is the bull going this way and then the bull going that way. Now, neither of these images were exactly perfect for Chaucer, but he wanted to show you, that he knows his Virgil, he knows his uh, uh, Dante, and so he gives you this picture uh, of, uh, he gives you this picture of Troilus raging, raging about in his bedroom. Repeat of book one. That is to say, you're now going to have two interviews between Pandarus and Troilus in which Pandarus Tries to comfort or teach or console uh, him, and it's, it's very much, uh, like the, uh, it, it's very much like the first scene. The first one is here, uh, in the, uh, bedroom. And here, Pandarus seems to let the cat out of the bag, at least as to what he regards is the real problem. He says, you know, you really are making pretty heavy weather of the fact that, uh, you've been kind of shafted by a girl. Are you unaware that women are exactly like the number 16 bus and that there's one that comes by every 22 minutes? No. And uh, there, I can point out, this is his kind of language, I can point out 12 better-looking chicks in Troy right now than she ever was. So you poor Troy almost recovers enough to be shocked. I mean, he's, you know, because uh, he, you know, this is true love. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? What, what are you possibly uh, talking about? Well, here, uh, Troilus, I mean, here, Pandarus at line 414 is full of his usual proverbs, and he quotes one of the most cynical lines in Ovid. He says, how do you get rid of an old nail? Now, in order to follow this, uh, image, you have to know that ancient nails didn't have a head. They were just a piece of wire slightly flattened at the top, right? He would take another nail and put it on top of the, the other one, and drive it halfway through, and then get a pair of pliers and pull the other one out. So this is what he says you ought to do with regard to this woman. If you want to get over one woman, the way to do it is to get another woman. Use the other woman to take your mind uh, off this. Now, Troilus is uh, is really shocked, uh, and uh, Pandarus has to say this. For sin it may, but casual plaisance, some task shall put it out of Raymond Brimbron. Just casual plays on. He says this whole thing, uh, was just, uh, horsing around. That's from his, my point of view. I mean, point of view of me, uh, Pandarus. Uh, he doesn't realize, either he doesn't realize or he's not prepared to believe or not prepared to, uh, recognize how, uh, deep the, uh, how deep the attraction, uh, of, uh, tr- Troilus, uh, uh, is. Now, this is the most classical of all the all the books in the uh, in the Trios. It seems to me that Chaucer is running through all his repertory of all the uh, classical literature he's ever seen. Several of these stories you probably will recognize yourself. Remember Pyramus and Thisbe. That's the story you get at the end of Romeo and Juliet, where one lover discovers the other lover apparently dead, not really dead, just sleeping, not realizing that, commits suicide. The other one then wakes up, sees that this one really is dead, and so Commit suicide. That's the story of Pyramus and Thisbe, and you have this uh, uh, right in the middle of uh, Book Four, and several other classical allusions uh, that I don't have uh, time to um, uh, th- that I don't have time to go into. But one important philosophical point about Book Four is this: it is turned over to the philosophical proposition that Troilus does not have any freedom of the will. How could we possibly disprove this? How could we prove that uh, Troilus does have freedom in the world? Well, one way, it seems to me, is by noting that mainly Book 4 is taken up with Troilus and Crusader talking about quite plausible <laughs> paths, quite pl- uh, uh, plausible uh, actions that they might take. Uh, for example, uh, why don't you rape her? Says uh, Pandarus, uh, "Art thou in Troy?" At line 531, "Art thou in Troy and hast no hardiment to talk a woman which that loveth they? and wold deceive and of thee a Now is that not, is not this a nice vanite? Are you in Troy? This is rape city, man. Haven't you heard what caused the Trojan War? It was the rape of Helen. I mean, everybody does it." Uh, this is, I mean, this is the tone uh, of the uh, of, of the passage. Now, why doesn't Troilus respond to uh, any of these any of the possibilities that are suggested to him in uh, in Book Four? There, there's uh, the answer is I think that we see him presented here schematically caught. As Hercules at the crossroads between virtue and vice, you know, in the in the uh, old emblem, he's caught between the urgings of reason on the one hand and the urgings of desire uh, on the uh, on the other. Just to show you one textual passage, there are three altogether in the book. On page 540, at line 162, it says, "Love him not all pressed, all eager." Love made him eager to uh, to don her bida and rather Dion that she shouldn't don. But Raisin said to him on that other Sita, no, you really ought not to do this. Uh, when they're going to take Crusader away, uh, love says, stop it. Stop it at all uh, at all costs. But Reason says, oh, no, if you were to do that, she might get mad because it would expose the love affair. In other words, there's a rationalization or a rationalization that uh, Troilus comes up uh, with uh, everyone uh, on, uh, at every time, and when uh, Pandora says, "Why don't you just Why don't you just take her?" he says, "Oh no, uh, we can't uh, 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 can't do that uh, because uh, my father has spoken in Parliament." This is one of the few echoes of the Bible, actually, in the Troilus. Uh, the line that is echoed is Pilate, you know, when they're saying he orders that a sign be. Uh, posted over Jesus' cross, this Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they say, no, don't say that. Say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And what uh, uh, Pilate says is, what I have written, I have written. I'm not going to change that. And this is the line you get now here. Uh, My father has already spoken. He is not going to uh, change. Uh, he's not going to change anything. Well, these really are rationalizations or, uh, or ratiocinations. Notice the role of rumor and popular belief here. Uh, on page 547, you get the swift defam. That is, this is the fama uh, of Virgil. Remember when uh, when Aeneas and, uh, is hanging out with uh, Dido in Book Four, the word spreads around by gossip, and it spreads around through the mass nations of this bird-like goddess whose name is Fama, rumor. She flies over and what does she do? She mixes the truth with falsehood, which is, incidentally, the same definition as the definition of poetry in certain uh, ancient uh, ancient, and, and, and classical uh, classical uh, uh, texts. This is also a book, it seems to me, that treats uh, uh, that treats uh, Crusader very uh, shabbily, very, uh, uh, very painfully. Uh, on page 558, you have an example of what I'm talking about that comes from the heroides of Ovid. There's a long conversation uh, between uh, Troilus and Crusader about what they're going to do. It ends up inconclusive because Troilus thinks he can't do uh, that he can't do anything. But Crusada swears on a stack of Bibles that she's going to remain true to him. And she says specifically in line 1535, For thilk a day that e for cherishing, or dread of father, or for other wict, or for estate, delict, or for wedding, may false to you, mi Troilus, uh, Saturn's daughter, Juno, through her mict, as woe does adamant the dome dwell eternally in sticks the put of hell send me to hell may juno send me to hell if i ever am untrue to you and finally that, that in 1548 uh, uh, and now simois simois one of the two rivers in the plain of troy the other being the xanthus and now simois that as in arrowa Clare through Troya raneth noon did the say bear witness of the word that said is here, the day that I'm untrue to Troilus, you, the Simois River, should run backwards from the sea uh, to your uh, source. That's taken directly from the fifth heroine of Ovid, but it's transposed from the deceiving man. It's Paris who's actually written that, carved that in the bark uh, bark of the tree. So <laughs> here the classical tradition is being uh, manipulated, it seems to me, uh, in a way to, uh, uh, that is very negative to, uh, negative to uh, Crusader. A lot of critics take quite seriously what Crusader says at the very end of Book 4. And what does she say at the end of Book 4? She says, trusteth well that your estate royale and the vain delight nor other worthiness of you in where or torne morcial pomp, array, noble, or ached with chessa. N'madme, teru, on your distressa. It wasn't any of the externals. It wasn't the fact that you're so good looking. You're a great horseman. You're a terrific soldier. None of that stuff. But moral virtue, grounded upon truth. That was the cause. He first had on you, Ruth. Have you traveled in Italy? As they say in northern Italy, uh-uh, as they say in southern Italy, look, when have you seen any moral virtue grounded on truth that Crusader is responding to? And if you don't believe me there, what does she say next? A gentle heritan manhood that ye had a, uh, and that ye had as may thought into speech, as everything that soon did into uh, as rudish and publish appetite, and that your reason bridled your delete. Have you seen any moment when actually, uh, Troilus's reason was bridling his belief. It's always ironic or it's not there uh, at all. Either uh, Crusader simply uh, is lacking in knowledge of Troilus or she is uh, lacking in self-knowledge. Uh, this is also the book that introduces a theme that is going to be very crucial in Book 5. And again, this is rather technical, but it has to do with uh, in, in, uh, with relation to this that I've given you this handout. I believe that Chaucer has made ambiguity not a feature of his poem, but a major theme of his poem. Late, uh, in the middle of Book Four, when Troilus and Crusader are talking about how they're going to fix it up that she will get back, she hatches a plot against her father. The question you have to ask yourself if you're going to come to a, uh, some sort of coherent view of Crusader's character is, does she really mean any of this when she's saying? But what she says is this. My father, as you know, is very avaricious. And I'm going to go, or I'll go with him. I'll go over to the Greek camp. But when I get there, I know he's going to ask about all our possessions that are still back in Troy. And what I'll say is, oh, well, send me back, and I'll get the furniture, and I'll bring it back. And because he is so avaricious, that will actually work. If he should doubt me and should want to put me to the test of divination and throw sorts, you know, kind of throw the dice to see if I'm telling the truth, while he's doing this, I will subtly reach out and grab his arm and kind of disturb uh, the uh, integrity of this act of divination. It's really curious because she seems to believe that this stuff is really going to work and that she can interfere with it. Uh, uh, m- mechanically. But then she says something really bizarre. Uh, and it is uh, the uh, uh, quotation that you get at the very ba- very bottom of the page. The one with the box at number eight. For God is spaken in amphibologies and four o oh o so they tell in twenty leaves. And I think even if I didn't put the word amphibologies in old face type, you would think it's a rather strange word. It's highly significant that Chaucer is the first person to introduce the technical vocabulary of ambiguity into the English language, and that he does so in a thematically significant way in this poem. What is an amphibology? An amphibology is an intentionally tricky statement by one of these oracles. We saw it in the Night's Tale when, uh, at the statue uh, at the statue of Mars, uh, Temple of Mars, the statue says "victory," uh, very misleading, uh, mi- misleading victory. Amphibologies is one word, and ambages is another. You're going to find that in Book Five when Crusader, uh, when uh, Diomedes, trying to get Crusader in bed a little quicker, not that it takes, I'm afraid, very long. It's just it's shockingly easy to do, it seems to me, seeing the hard time that Troilus is at. But he says to her, you know, uh, un- unless your father has misled us with all these prophecies, uh, Troy is toast, and you know, if you've got a boyfriend over there, I'd forget about it and, you know, invest in uh, uh, make a sound investment. And but if Calchas lead us with ambages, he says, this is number one here, that is to say, and since he knows you won't know what the word means, he defines it for you, that is to saying with double word is slay Switch as men clep, a word with two, two visages. Uh, an ambage, that is to say, is a word with, that is a sly double word, what's black and white and red all over. Okay, that's sly, that red word, because it's intentionally misleading you, trying to make you think it's a color rather than the past participle of the verb to, to, to read. And men call this a word with two faces a genus-like word. Call it gentilesa. Call it whatever you want. We see a lot of genus-like words in this. Well, where did all this come from? I've given you, and I will go uh, over the, keep this handout again uh, for next time because it's a major theme in, in, in book five. There's a long history behind this technical vocabulary of, uh, of ambiguity. But the point that Chaucer, I think, is heading for, and he's going to make it in a, in, a, in a major way in the, in the fifth book, is the difference between the clarity of religious understanding under the Christian dispensation and the murky, shadowy, half-truths that you see in ancient uh, div- divination. And here, a very particular text of great importance is number three, that is uh, in Dante. When Dante in Paradise does a reverse version of what Aeneas had done in the sixth book of the Aeneas goes down into the underworld, and there he hears a very disturbing prophecy from the Cumaean Sybil, and it's hard to figure out and so on. He goes up to heaven, uh, and, uh, he hears the following, uh, wh- wh- he hears, uh, a, uh, a prediction, uh, that is actually a prediction of what has already happened and Dante writes ne per ambage folle. not through ambages in which the crazy people used to get bogged down before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world came into the world ma per chiare parole in con preciso Latin but with clear words and precise Latin, what he means by that is serious language uh, spoke the voice of that paternal love that is speaking uh, to uh, to Dante in Dante's vision that is to say the ambiguity that is characteristic of the uh, ancient pagan gods uh, is uh, is uh, is redeemed well Chaucer is prepared for us now here in it's a very surprising move uh, that just as the plot uh, starts to become I think uh, very heavy uh, and uh, uh, tra- uh, tragic, the theme uh, begins to become very philosophically significant. It's one of the major themes that he has in, uh, in book five, to, for which you have an entire weekend uh, to, uh, uh, to to read, and it's, uh, it's a hard book, but it's absolutely worth it. So on to book five.